0: Hello and welcome to the Zero to Finals podcast. My name is Tom, and in this episode, I'm going to be going through acute coronary syndrome. And you can find written notes on this topic at to slash ACS or in the cardiology section of the Zero to Finals Medicine book. So let's get straight into it. Acute coronary syndrome is usually the result of a thrombus from an atherosclerotic plaque blocking a coronary artery. When a thrombus forms in a fast-flowing artery, such as the coronary arteries, it's formed mainly of platelets. And this is why antiplatelet medications, such as aspirin, clopidogrel, and ticagrelor, are the mainstay of treatment. There are three types of acute coronary syndrome, and we're going to go into more detail about each of these later on. These types are unstable angina, ST elevation myocardial infarction or a STEMI and non-ST elevation myocardial infarction or an NSTEMI. Let's start with some coronary artery anatomy. Two coronary arteries branch from the root of the aorta, the right coronary artery and the left coronary artery. The right coronary artery curves around the side of the heart and under the heart and it supplies the right atrium, right ventricle, the inferior aspect of the left ventricle and the posterior septal area. The left coronary artery becomes the circumflex artery and the left anterior descending. The circumflex artery curves around the top of the heart the left side and the back and it supplies the left atrium and the posterior aspect of the left ventricle. The left anterior descending artery travels down the middle of the heart and it supplies the anterior aspect of the left ventricle and the anterior aspect of the septum of the heart. Let's talk about the presentation. Acute coronary syndrome typically presents with central constricting chest pain. The chest pain is often associated with pain radiating to the jaw or the arms, nausea and vomiting, sweating and clamminess, a feeling of impending doom, shortness of breath and potentially palpitations. Symptoms should continue at rest for more than 15 minutes. A silent myocardial infarction is when someone does not experience typical chest pain during acute coronary syndrome. Patients with diabetes are particularly at risk of silent myocardial infarction or silent MIs. Let's talk about the ECG changes in acute coronary syndrome. In a STEMI or ST elevation MI, there will be ST segment elevation or a new left bundle branch block. In an N-stemi, there may be ST-segment depression or T-wave inversion. Pathological Q-waves suggest a deep infarction involving the full thickness of the heart muscle, and this is described as transmural when it goes through the full thickness of the heart muscle and typically pathological Q-waves appear 6 or more hours after the onset of symptoms. The ECG leads that are affected depend on which artery and area of the heart are affected. When the left coronary artery is affected, this affects the anterolateral area of the heart and there will be changes in leads 1, AVL and V3 to V6. When the left anterior descending artery is affected, this affects the anterior aspect of the heart and there will be changes in V1 to V4. When the circumflex artery is affected, this affects the lateral aspect of the heart and there will be changes in 1, AVL and V5 to V6. And when the right coronary artery is affected, This affects the inferior aspect of the heart and there will be changes in 2, 3 and AVF. Next let's talk about troponins. Troponin is a protein that's found in cardiac muscle in the myocardium and in skeletal muscle. The specific type of troponin, normal range and diagnostic criteria vary based on different laboratories so always check the local policy. A rise in troponin is consistent with myocardial ischemia as they are released from the ischemic heart muscle tissue. Troponin results are used to diagnose an N-STEMI. They're not required to diagnose a STEMI as this is diagnosed based on the clinical picture and the ECG findings. Assessment may involve repeat troponin tests depending on the local policy, for example at baseline and at 3 hours after the onset of symptoms. A high troponin level or a rising troponin level on repeated tests in the context of suspected acute coronary syndrome indicates an NSTEMI. Troponin is a non specific marker, meaning that a raised troponin does not automatically imply acute coronary syndrome. The alternative causes of a raised troponin include chronic kidney disease, sepsis, myocarditis, aortic dissection, and a pulmonary embolism. Let's talk about the other investigations. Additional investigations in patients with suspected or confirmed acute coronary syndrome include baseline blood tests including a full blood count, use and ease, liver function tests, lipids and glucose, a chest x-ray to investigate for pulmonary edema and other causes of chest pain and an echocardiogram once the patient is stable to assess the functional damage of the heart specifically the left ventricular function. So let's talk in more detail about the classification of acute coronary syndrome. Patients with acute cardiac sounding chest pain will have an ECG and troponin blood test as part of their workup. The results of the ECG and the troponin will determine the type of acute coronary syndrome. A STEMI or ST elevation MI is diagnosed when the ECG shows either ST elevation or a new left bundle branch block. This means a patient can be diagnosed with an ST elevation MI if they don't have ST elevation, but they do have a new left bundle branch block. An NSTEMI is diagnosed when there is a raised troponin with either a normal ECG or other ECG changes such as ST depression or T wave inversion. Unstable angina is diagnosed when there are symptoms that suggest acute coronary syndrome such as chest pain, the troponin is normal and either there's a normal ECG or other ECG changes such as ST depression or T wave inversion. Therefore when a patient is presenting with chest pain and the troponin and ECG are normal the diagnosis is either unstable angina or another cause, such as musculoskeletal chest pain. Let's talk about the initial management. The information here is based on the chest pain NICE guidelines updated in 2016 and the NICE guidelines on acute coronary syndrome updated in 2020. The information aims to help you with exam preparation. When you're managing patients, follow local guidelines and get senior support. In patients presenting with symptoms of acute coronary syndrome the initial management can be remembered with the C pain mnemonic. C for call an ambulance, P for perform an ECG, A for aspirin 300 mg, I for intravenous morphine for pain if required with an antiemetic for example metaclopramide and N for nitrate with sublingual glyceryl trinitrate or GTN. When the patient is pain-free but the chest pain occurred within the past 72 hours, they need to be referred to the hospital for same-day assessment, usually to be seen by the medical team on the ambulatory care unit, depending on the local pathways. They may require emergency admission if there are ECG changes or complications such as heart failure. Let's talk about the management of an ST elevation MI. Patients with a STEMI presenting within 12 hours of onset should be discussed urgently with the local cardiac center for either percutaneous coronary intervention or PCI, if available within two hours of the presentation or thrombolysis if PCI is not available within two hours. The cardiac centre will advise about medications to be given in preparation for percutaneous coronary intervention such as aspirin and Prasugrel. Percutaneous coronary intervention or PCI involves putting a catheter into the patient's radial or femoral artery. Usually the radial artery is preferred feeding the catheter up to the coronary arteries under x-ray guidance and then injecting contrast to identify the area of blockage. Blockages can be treated with balloons to widen the lumen, which is angioplasty, or devices to remove or aspirate the blockage. Usually a stent is inserted to keep the artery open. Thrombolysis involves injecting a fibrinolytic medication. Fibrinolytic agents work by breaking down fibrin in blood clots. There is a significant risk of bleeding with thrombolysis which can make it dangerous. Some examples of thrombolytic agents are streptokinase, alteplase and tenecteplase. Let's talk about the management of a non-ST elevation MI or an NSTEMI. The medical management of an NSTEMI can be remembered with the BATMAN mnemonic. B is for base the decision about angiography and PCI on the GRACE score which we'll talk about in more detail shortly. A is for aspirin 300mg stat dose. T is for ticagrelor 180mg stat dose. Clopidogrel may be used as the second antiplatelet if the patient has a higher bleeding risk or Prasugrel may be used if the patient's having angiography. M is for morphine titrated to control pain and metaclopramide may be used to help with nausea and vomiting. A is for antithrombin therapy with Paranox which is used unless there's a high bleeding risk or the patient's going for immediate angiography. And finally, N is for nitrate, referring to GTN or glycerol trinitrate. Only give oxygen if the patient's saturations are dropping, for example, less than 95% in someone without COPD. Let's, let's talk about angiography used in patients with an NSTEMI. Unstable patients with an NSTEMI are considered for immediate angiography, similar to patients with a STEMI. The GRACE score gives a six month probability of death following an NSTEMI. 3% or less is considered low risk, and above 3% is considered medium to high risk. Patients at medium or high risk are considered for early angiography with percutaneous coronary intervention within 72 hours of the presentation. Next, let's talk about ongoing management. After the initial management, patients require an echocardiogram once they're stable to assess the functional damage to the heart, specifically the left ventricular function, cardiac rehabilitation, and secondary prevention. Medications for secondary prevention after a myocardial infarction can be remembered with the 6A's mnemonic. Aspirin 75mg once daily indefinitely. Another antiplatelet, for example ticagrelor or clopidogrel, usually for 12 months. Atorvastatin 80mg once a day. An ACE inhibitor, for example ramipril, titrated to the maximum dose. A tenolol or another beta blocker, usually bisoprolol, titrated as high as tolerated, and aldosterone antagonists for those with clinical heart failure, for example, a plerinone, titrated to 50 mg once daily. Dual antiplatelet therapy, for example, with aspirin and ticagrelor, will vary following percutaneous coronary intervention procedures depending on the type of stent that was inserted. Next let's talk about the complications. The complications of a myocardial infarction can be remembered with the DREAD mnemonic. D for death, R for rupture of the heart septum or the papillary muscles, E for edema or heart failure, A for arrhythmia and aneurysm, and D for Dressler's syndrome. So let's talk in more detail about Dressler's syndrome. Dressler's syndrome is also called post-myocardial infarction syndrome. It usually occurs around 2-3 to weeks after an acute myocardial infarction. It's caused by a localised immune response that results in inflammation of the pericardium which is the membrane that surrounds the heart. Inflammation of the pericardium is called pericarditis. Dressler syndrome has become less common as the management of acute coronary syndrome has advanced. Dressler syndrome presents with pleuritic chest pain, low-grade fever and a pericardial rub on auscultation. A pericardial rub is a rubbing, scratching sound that occurs alongside the heart sounds. It can cause a pericardial effusion with fluid within the pericardial sac and rarely it can cause a pericardial tamponade where the fluid constricts the heart and inhibits its function. A diagnosis can be made with an ECG showing global ST elevation in all the leads as well as T-wave inversion an echocardiogram which can show a pericardial effusion or fluid in the pericardial sac surrounding the heart and raised inflammatory markers on the blood tests, for example CRP and ESR. Management is with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, for example aspirin or ibuprofen and in more severe cases with steroids, for example prednisolone. Pericardiocentesis may be required to remove fluid from around the heart if there's a significant pericardial effusion. Finally let's go through the types of myocardial infarction. Knowing the types of myocardial infarction is helpful for exams. These terms are not frequently used in everyday practice as they may be confusing for those that are not familiar with them. A type 1 MI is a traditional myocardial infarction due to an acute coronary event. This is the type that we've just been discussing. A type 2 MI is when there's ischemia secondary to increased demand or reduced supply of oxygen, for example secondary to severe anemia, tachycardia with a very fast heart rate or hypotension. With a very low blood pressure. A type 3 MI is when there's sudden cardiac death or cardiac arrest suggestive of an ischemic event and a type 4 MI is when there's a myocardial infarction associated with procedures such as percutaneous coronary intervention, coronary stenting or a coronary artery bypass graft. So thanks for listening to this episode on Acute Coronary Syndrome. As always, a big thank you to Harry Watchman for perfectly editing the podcast. If you like these podcast episodes, do consider becoming a member of Zero to Finals on Patreon at patreon.com slash zero to finals, where you'll get early access to these podcast episodes, early access to the YouTube videos, as well as access to the members area on Zero to Finals, where you can access the zero to finals digital flashcards and the full question bank, which contains multiple choice questions, short answer questions, and extended matching questions to test yourself on the information in these podcast episodes. And I hope you join us for the next episode where we'll talk about pericarditis.